We have been studying the book of Genesis uh, for a while now, and, um, and for the last few weeks, Noah's been building a boat and floating on a boat. And, uh, and finally, as the waters recede and the land appears, Noah waits on the boat until God invites him to come off. And he finally comes off Noah and his family and all of the animals. And that's where our scripture picks up today as we finish the story of Noah together. This is from Genesis chapters 8 and 9. Noah built an altar to the Lord. He then took some of every kind of clean animal and clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled the soothing aroma and said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of humankind, even though their inclination of their minds is evil from childhood on. I will never again destroy everything that lives as I have just done. While the earth continues to exist, planting time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night, will not cease. Then God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Every living creature of the earth and every bird of the sky will be terrified of you. Everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea are under your authority. You may eat any moving thing that lives, as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. But you must not eat meat with its life, that is, its blood in it. For your lifeblood, I will surely exact punishment. From every living creature, I will exact punishment. From each person, I will exact punishment for the life of the individual, since the man was his relative. Whoever sheds human blood by other humans, must his blood be shed. For in God's image, God has made humankind. But as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase abundantly on the earth and multiply on it. God said to Noah and his sons, Look, I now confirm my covenant with you and your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, including the birds, the domestic animals, and every living creature of the earth with you, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on the earth. I confirm my covenant with you. Never again will all living things be wiped out by the waters of a, of a flood. Never again will a flood destroy the earth. And God said, this is the guarantee of the covenant I am making with you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all subsequent generations. I will place my rainbow in the clouds and it will become a guarantee of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, then I will remember my covenant with you and with all living creatures of all kinds. Never again will the waters become a flood and destroy all living things. When the rainbow is in the clouds, I will notice it and remember the perpetual covenant between God and all living creatures and all of all kinds that are on the earth. So God said to Noah, this is the guarantee of the covenant that I am confirming between me and all living things that are on the earth. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark 
were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them the whole earth was populated. Noah, a man of the soil, began to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of the wine, he got drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father's nakedness and told his two brothers who were outside. Shem and Japheth took the garment and placed it on their shoulders. Then they walked in backwards and covered up their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned the other way so that they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his drunken stupor, he learned what his youngest son had done to him. So he said, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves he will be to his brothers. He, he also said, Worthy of praise is the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God enlarge Japheth's territory and numbers. May he live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be the slave of Japheth. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, um, speak to us about your word as we consider the, the early days of Noah and the new heavens and earth. By your spirit, Lord, I ask thee, sanctify your word in our hearts. Lord, even these scenes that are a little uh, odd and confusing to us, this encounter that Noah and Ham had and whatever, whatever went on there, Lord, uh, even these scenes, even the, the, the cursing of a grandson by his grandfather, uh, help us, Lord, to hold these words as holy, they're sometimes strange to us, but they're holy, and by them you guide us. Use the preaching of the word to do that today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, um, as we consider this, uh, Noah getting off the boat, building the altar, God making these promises to Noah, this thing that happened with, uh, with Ham and, and Shem and Japheth and all of this, um, the, the concept that I want to focus on that I think this passage highlights to us is the concept of God's faithfulness, actually. God's faithfulness. And God's faithfulness is a, um, it's an easy to trivialize concept, isn't it? I mean, something goes wrong in your life, you, you apply for a job and don't get it. Uh, um, um, uh, some, a loved one gets sick. Uh, um, there's a death in the family, whatever, depression, financial crisis, etc. If you're interacting with Christians, someone at some point might say, well, God's faithful, you know, hang on, God's faithful. And it could be such a wonderful truth, right? It could be just this overwhelming, beautiful truth. And sometimes in the dark moments, that feels like, are you sure? Like, did you just hear what I'm going through? You know, that, that feeling like, I'm not sure I'm seeing what you're seeing. And this passage, what it does is it presents the faithfulness of God in a beautiful way. And it also presents the messiness of life in a, in a troubling way. 
We get those both in this passage. Here's the deal. The faithfulness of God is not a concept that any of the Israelites, the first group of people who would have been hearing these stories are the Israelites. They've just been rescued from Egypt and they're out in the wilderness and there's this powerful God who just defeated all the gods of Egypt and set them free. And they would not take for granted that a God is faithful. Did you know that? They wouldn't take that for granted. We sort of have this, you know, Judeo-Christian idea that's, that kind of covers our culture. And there's still some expectation that if there's, you know, even for non-believers, if there's some God, you know, at the wheel of the universe, he's faithful. You know, he's consistent. That was not an expectation of those people. The gods of Egypt and, and, and the Sumerian gods, the Babylonian gods, the Mesopotamian gods, there's a bunch of them and they're always fighting each other and they're fickle and they don't really like people. In fact, they tried to drown all the people because they were too noisy. Um, you know, the other flood stories. So the people don't take for granted that, that a God would be faithful, that he would be trustworthy. They just take for granted that you should probably try to make that God happy if he's the powerful God that's kind of near your people. So a story that shows God as faithful would be revolutionary for them, and it should be revolutionary for us. Look, we have dark and lonely moments. There are scary things happening in the world. We've already talked about Ethiopia. And sometimes God's faithfulness, this concept feels like a million miles away. Last week, we talked about this transition that happens in our lives, this um, this journey from believing that we're the center of the universe, which every little kid believes, especially in sort of a loving and uh, safe context. Kid, you know, it's good that kids believe, it's good that baby James believes he's the center of the universe, right? That, that's good. You know, that means he's, he's loved. Um, but then at some point in our lives, we have to go through that painful realization that we're not the center of the universe. And that can make us feel alone. That can make us go through teenage rebellions. That can make us go through um, rebellions in our 30s and 40s. You know, that it, it's this uh, dark and scary moment. And what we said counteracts that reality is the center of the whole Noah story. God remembered Noah. That's the very centerpiece of the story. Noah is there on a boat alone. There's no one else, nothing else except the things that are on the boat. He can't see any land, just water as far as the eye can see. And the, and the story says, God remembered Noah. Somehow Noah is aware of God's recognition of him. It's not that God had forgotten Noah and now, oh yeah, there's that Noah guy. Like, no, no, no. It's that God is acting on Noah's behalf. He's mindful of Noah. And even though we realize at some point in our lives we're not the center of the universe. As soon as we learn that God is mindful of us, we don't need to be. We don't need to be anymore. So this God who's mindful of us, he shows himself to be faithful. Today I want to talk about how we experience that faithfulness about God's promise of faithfulness, the power of his faithfulness, and the proof of his faithfulness. So 
the experience of faithfulness. Here's what I mean. I'm talking about us. How do we experience God's faithfulness? Um, Noah, if, if I sort of put myself in Noah's shoes, it's very likely that I could have climbed off the boat entitled and a little bit bitter. Like, <laughs> that was a long time to be in the boat. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, we had to wait. There was land. We had to wait another month or two before you invited us off. You better be good to me. Like, I'm demanding some blessing here. Take care of me. But if Noah had come off with that mentality, his ability to sort of see who God is and understand who he is would have been impeded. He would have been blinded to that. Instead, what Noah does is the first thing he, the first way he acts is he's humbled by God's faithfulness and he offers God worship. He offers this, this, this burnt offering just like Abel did, you know, Cain and Abel. And God is pleased by this offering. Now, the offering doesn't change God's mind. He doesn't adjust his plan to be even nicer to Noah than he was planning on being. But when Noah offers the offering, he sees things about the Lord. He hears the Lord. His, his offering is very much like the prayer of Job. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in that, Noah experiences God's faithfulness. Much later in the Bible, Paul encourages his readers to experience God's faithfulness with the three easiest verses in the Bible to memorize and the three hardest verses in the Bible to live out. Uh, always rejoice, constantly pray, and everything give thanks. There's the three verses, you know. There you go. Memorize that. Always rejoice. Constantly pray in everything. Give thanks. Those are really nice sentiments and really hard to. Are they? Is it even possible? Always, always rejoice. Constantly pray. Like really, is it really possible? But, but what if those three concepts are actually part of experiencing God's faithfulness? What if they're related? What if we found ourselves like Noah, aware of God's protection, amazed at his provision, and offering our thanks to him, no matter what's going on? My uh, pastor in college named Ben explained these three verses. He, he believed this was entirely possible, that we could live this way. And I think he's right. He says they're all connected. Joy is what we experience when we're grateful for the grace that's been given to us. And so if we're living in that mentality, just thank you, thank you, thank you, grateful for the grace that's been given to us, joys, joys the echo that comes back to us. So here we are at the beginning of another week. I don't know everything that the last seven days held for all of you. Some of you had pain, confusion, anger, sadness, stress. Some of you turned 40 in the last seven days. Yeah. Mm. And yet, here we are again, gathered to worship God. You may have really hard things happening that you have to go back to after this service, but you are gathered in this place with the people of God. You could start there. The grace been given to you. And when you're grateful for that grace, 
He'll start to show himself to you the way he shows himself to Noah. God's response to Noah is part of the promise of faithfulness. Um, his response to Noah's sacrifice is not some impulsive reaction like, mm, that offering smells really good. Like, okay, I guess I'll be nice to you. It's not that. There's no new plans. Instead, what he gives to Noah is a revelation of the plan that was already beginning to unfold. And this this principle, it does, it's not true always. You know, God's not a vending machine. You sing a song to him and he shows you something. All right, that's... That's not exactly how it works. He's not a machine. And yet, I think God loves to show himself to us when we worship him, when we're gathered in praise, when we put ourselves in a posture of gratitude, especially in the darkest moments. He loves to show himself to us. It often happens to me that in in worship, I'm able to sense the heart of heaven, to feel his love, to trust his will. I don't know that anything about God changes in that moment. In fact, nothing about him does. But worship changes me. It opens my eyes to see what he's showing me. So in worship, Noah learns something. He learns that God will never again destroy the earth. That's the promise of faithfulness. At least that's the foundation. That's that's. That's the beginning of what God's going to reveal over the course of Scripture about his faithfulness. I will never again destroy the things that live on the earth. I'm not going to do it. Never again. Even though the things that live on the earth are inclined to evil. Yeah, later God will say he's never going to flood the earth again, but in and the first time he says it, at the end of chapter 8, it's simple. I'm, I will never destroy everything that lives. This divine preservation includes a call to justice for people. He invites us to participate in his justice. And I, I think he even, I don't know if it happens here, but he writes that into our beings. You know how every one of us, if we talked about somebody who was like abusing kittens, Every one of us would be immediately mad about that, whether we like cats or not. It's written, into, it's, it's written into us that if somebody mistreats a living thing, and especially somebody mistreats a person, we, like, we need justice for that. We want to know that things will be made right. And here, as part of God's preservation of the earth, he hadn't done this before, and things ran amok. Violence ran amok before the flood. Well, now it is written in. There, if, if someone sheds blood, their blood should be shed. It's harsh justice, but he's partnering with us in doing it. But all of this, all of this promise of not destroying the earth, it's building up to the main revelation of God's faithfulness. It's a word that's so important. It's the word covenant. In fact, in this passage, the word for covenant is repeated seven times. And, you know, if you've been tracking with us in Genesis, when a word gets repeated seven times, it's the main idea. It's the thing that we're supposed to notice. It's like we're supposed to say, all right, what is this showing me about covenant? And remember, the first people who are hearing the story of Noah, the 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 are the Israelites who are um, outside of Egypt. They're in the wilderness. And there they are. They're gathered in Mount Sinai. They've, they've been given the Ten Commandments. What have they been given? They've been given this long and detailed covenant. This 
God who spoke to them and scared them and, and is guiding them through the wilderness is making a partnership with them. He's establishing a relationship with them. And there are blessings in store for them if they obey. And there are curses waiting for them if they disobey. So they're, they're, they're seeing that this is how this God operates. He, he makes these, well, these commitments. He has this specific type of relationship that he enters into with his people. And so this God is a God who makes covenants. Well, what is the covenant God like? Here we have the story of Noah presenting covenant, repeating the word covenant over and over again. And we get to learn the heart of covenant. His covenant with Noah will show the Israelites what he's like. Now, um, covenants are kind of rare for us. The closest we come to thinking about covenants is when people get married, generally, or if you live in, in a homeowner's association. <laughs> okay? That's the two. That's like the closest we come. That's when we use the word covenant the most. But for the Israelites, covenants were pretty common if a if a king or a tribal leader conquered a, another group, he would make a deal with them. Like, here's the terms of our arrangement, all right? Here's what you'll give to me, and here's the protection or whatever fear I'll give to you, and, and this is our covenant. You know, this is, this is what we do. Here's the terms. So always the more powerful party is setting the terms and also describing the punishments if we don't obey the covenant. And so in this, if the Israelites are hearing God make a covenant with Noah, they're waiting to hear, like, what are the terms? What's going to happen? What, what's it going to look like? And, and this is a unique situation here because other covenants in Scripture do ask things of people, but God never asks a thing of Noah in this. God makes all, all of the action is on him. He makes his promise and never asks Noah or her descendants or his descendants to do anything. In his covenant, he restates his promise not to destroy the earth, not to flood it again. The, the flood, it's, it's not saying, yeah, because later I'm going to destroy it with fire or something. That, that's not what he's implying. In fact, what he's saying with the flood is not only will I not let you know, waters cover the earth like that, but I won't let chaos take over again. My order will remain on earth. That's a gift to us. But his promise that his order will remain on earth is going to be tested right away. And so the power of his faithfulness will be tested. You see, it's, it's one thing to be faithful when the person you're trying to be faithful to deserves it. <laughs> like when they're nice to you, it's, it's easy to be faithful, right? Like um, those of you who are married or have been married, you, it's easy to be faithful to your spouse when they're being great to you. Faithfulness can be tested though when that relationship gets difficult. That's what happens next. Um, I, I have a good friend from college uh, who randomly texts me Bible questions. And it just so happened that while I was writing this sermon, 
he texts me this question. He's, he's a, a doctor down in Texas, this brilliant researcher, and always has weird and great questions. Um, but this time, his question, he was, he was reading later on in the Old Testament about the kings of Israel. And there's, there's this king of Judah named Hezekiah. And there's a lot in there about Hezekiah. Hezekiah is great. He's this awesome king. He's faithful. He removes idol worship. He cares for the poor. He trusts in God. He prays. He responds when the prophets call him to do things. He's great. And what my friend was asking is, why doesn't Hezekiah get more press? Like, why don't Christians name their sons Hezekiah? What's, what's going on? You know, aside from it being a, a bit of an awkward name. Um, you know, what, like, why don't we celebrate him more than David or more than whatever? And so, of course, I had to flip over and read a bit of the Hezekiah story to refresh my memory. And, and it occurred to me that my buddy hadn't read the whole story of Hezekiah. You see, Hezekiah's amazing life ends with some really dark scenes. After being faithful in so many ways, he boasts, he invites the leaders of Babylon to take a tour of Jerusalem. And... In doing so, he basically gives them an invitation to come and conquer them. When a prophet tells him what, he do, what he's done, he's like, eh, at least it won't happen in my lifetime. It's a bummer way to end. Hezekiah's son is basically the worst king in the history of Israel, Manasseh. He's terrible, violent, vicious. Hezekiah's last two scenes are are troubling. His record of righteousness is badly tainted at the end. And gosh, the same thing is going to happen with Noah here. It's such a bummer. Noah has been so great. Everything God's asked him, he's walked with the Lord. He's obeyed him. The, the story tells us again and again, Noah obeys exactly what God says. It's like, who is this guy? It's amazing. But here he is, he's off the boat, he offers his offering, he's kind of getting set up, you know, the, the civilization is starting to grow, he plants an, a vineyard, you know, a fruit tree, and he overindulges in the fruit of the vine. He gets drunk. So many parts of the Noah story are retelling the Adam and Eve story. You know, be fruitful and multiply. You know, that you have these three sons and they'll go and the rest of civilization will come from them. You rule over the animals. You can have all the animals, but just don't have the animals with blood in it. Just like you can have all the trees, just don't have this one tree. So many parts of the Noah story are redoing this story. Is Noah going to do right what Adam and Eve did wrong? Well, here he is under a fruit tree. Adam and Eve ate the fruit, the forbidden fruit. And realize that they're naked and felt shame for that. Noah overindulges in the fruit and gets naked. <laughs> you know, he loses his mind. He live tweets from the middle of downtown, walking the streets naked. Nakedness is a sign of shame. And his shame creates a window for his youngest son, Ham, to dishonor him. Again, it's easy to honor your parents, your spouse, other people when they're acting honorably. A deeper, more generous honor is available when they're not. That's when it's hard to honor the others in your life. 
when they don't seem to deserve it. Eventually, we learn that our parents are, are as sinful and broken as we are. Can we still honor them? A few years ago, um, I, uh, a couple that I was close to was going through a painful time. Uh, and uh, in, especially in the, the wife's extended family, there had been a lot of loss. There had been some death. There was some some broken relationships that were really hard. There were just some really hard things going on. And it was affecting her in negative ways. She was misinterpreting things, like making too many things about herself. And, and it was hard. She, at times, she was really hard to be around. And I was there several times when her husband would have had an opportunity to enter into the sort of letting off steam about her, releasing the pressure. And every single time he had a chance to do that, every single time, he said, you know, there's there's just been some really hard things that are going on with her. And and when she does this, um, uh, her, her, her desire for you all is this, you know, and like each time, even though the behavior was like almost crazy making. He found a way to honor her. It was stunning. It was stunning. He acted like Shem and Japheth. Whereas others, and frankly, I participated in it too, acted a bit like Ham. Like we kind of, we we felt uncomfortable about the way things were going. And so we complained about it with each other. It made us feel a little bit more powerful in a difficult situation. And that's the temptation, right? Ham goes out and is like, Look, come and see dad. He's naked. He's passed out naked in the tent. I don't know exactly if that's how Ham sounds, but probably. Um, that, you know, and Noah, that he's the, the human authority on earth, and Ham has an opportunity to knock him down a peg. Ham, the youngest son. I don't know what happened inside the tent. There's a bunch of theories, and none of those people know either. None of those people know either. He humiliated his dad when his dad was vulnerable. And so Noah, you know, wakes up. He's maybe groggy, maybe has a bad headache, but he's really mad about it. And so instead of cursing Ham, he curses Ham's son, Canaan. Well, Canaan is the father of the Canaanites. The Canaanites are the primary sort of nemesis of the Israelites now that they're out in the wilderness. The Canaanites are occupying the promised land and the Israelites have to go in and kick them out to receive the promised land. And they're kind of scary and they do a lot of scary things and they, in their worship, they offer child sacrifices and, and they're, they're violent and, and big and, and well, oh, this kind of explains to us what they're like. He curses Ham's son, Canaan. Or I remember I said this whole section was about the power of faithfulness. Well, here's the deal. This doesn't start a downward spiral where violence and chaos overtake and God needs to consider flooding the earth again. Noah participates in the justice. Things are set back in place. And the sun rose again for him. 
Ham goes on to be the father not just of the Canaanites, but of the Egyptians and, and many other major powerful people groups on earth. He, he still receives the blessings that are given through Noah and, and to the earth. The sun rose again the next day. Because the first covenant in the Bible comes with no strings attached, no duties for Noah and his offspring to uphold. God is not deterred by what happened. He's not deterred. This establishes the foundation for everything else we can know about God. He is merciful while he is faithful. He doesn't doesn't give us what our sins deserve. He has vowed against his own self to preserve creation. Justice will come with mercy. You guys, the Israelites who are hearing this story, they will rebel in the wilderness. They'll lose their faith. They'll wander away. They'll worship other gods. And yet God will preserve their children and give them the promised land. Later on, their greatest king, King David, his line is tainted by his own sins. And yet God keeps his promise to keep a king in the line of David on the throne. He's the Lord, the Lord, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Welcome back, kids. You can find your parents. And so, how do we know? How do we know that God is faithful in this way? Well, the last thing we need to hear is how God proves his faithfulness. In all of this, there's this amazing symbol, this sign of God's covenant that is given in this passage. Rain brought the flood. It brought destruction before. Now what will rain bring every time? It will bring a rainbow. A rainbow. Now, the word here in the, in the Old Testament is not the word rainbow. I don't know if there is a word for rainbow. God just says, I'm going to hang a bow in the sky. That is the weapon, like a bow and arrow. And, and there's an interesting thing about a rainbow. It, it, you know, based on physics and everything else, the rainbow is all, no matter when you see it, it's always pointed in the same direction. If it's a bow and it's strung, imagine it being pulled and an arrow knocked on that, on that bow. It's always pointed upward. The, the, the sign that God gives is not a reminder to us, even though it does remind us. He says, every time I see it, I will remember that I've made this promise. Every time. It's this reminder to God. I have set this bow in the clouds and it's pointed at me. If this covenant is broken, I will take the penalty for it. Every covenant is potentially destructive. Covenants are are relationships that are more powerful than the two parties that are entered into them. Those people who have gone through divorce or the loss of a marriage in one way or another or just really hard times in your marriage, you know, the marriage covenant, it, it it can't really get broken. It just breaks us. And yet God is saying he'll take the breaking. This sign, this physical thing, tells us 
of God's willingness to uphold his faithful promises to us. And so I wonder if a rainbow came to anyone's mind on the night that Jesus was betrayed. On the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks for it, he broke it and said, take and eat. This is my body which is given for you. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you eat this bread or drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is the sign of the covenant. And every time we see it, we remember that that arrow was loosed. It was shot and it hit its target. To preserve the earth, God took the punishment for our sins. Here's the proof of his faithfulness right here. Let's pray. Father, though many dark times come to us, though our hearts are inclined to evil, even in that moment we can say, you have paid the price for us. Even in that moment. Lord, I ask that you would humble us at the table today. Our hearts are inclined to evil. We have nothing to give. We have no way to receive your benefits, and you have asked nothing of us. You have simply offered yourself to us. And so, Lord, I, I, in this prayer, I invite anyone who would come by faith and receive the promise of God's faithfulness to them, the promise of, of his preservation, the promise that you will be with us through the darkness and the light. Thank you, Lord, for giving yourself to us. In Jesus' name, amen. And so,